Hi, everybody. You're tuned in for another episode of Getting to the Root of It with Venus Roots. But before we get started, this isn't just another episode, actually. This is the second year anniversary of the show, and it brings up a lot of tender emotions for me, a lot of gratitude and humility. I think I was battling a lot of imposter syndrome two years ago when I was in my bedroom thinking about the fact or wondering if anybody would even listen or if anyone would benefit from the conversations I could bring forward through this platform. And I've been proven wrong time and time again. I'm so, so grateful to have folks all over the world just listening and tuning in and resonating with these conversations. And on top of that, today's guest is someone who I deeply just see as a sibling, as a twin flame in many ways, not just because we're both Geminis, but because literally every conversation we have is sort of an exchange of sort of like cosmic magic and light and laughter and joy and vulnerability. And that's exactly what I wanted to celebrate the two years with. And of course, um, today is also an eclipse in Gemini. So it only felt appropriate to have someone like them on today. But welcome to the show, Mimi. Hi. <laughs> Hi, my love. Hi, um, Hi, I just want to express my unending gratitude to you, Nikki, for doing the work, for doing the work, but also for existing and for not working too. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> yeah, for like resting and being beautiful and a baddie with a big brain mm. and also being smooth brain with me when we require those moments together. Um, but I do want to join in the affirmations and celebrations of you doing this for two years. Like, how iconic. Thank you so much, love. It really means so, so much to hear you say all of that. I receive it fully and hold it in my heart. So, Mimi, there's, I mean, I feel like it's funny because I don't know if I love, like, introducing people so much in the show because it's, like, folks are just so dynamic, multi-hyphenated and, like, complex and nuanced and holding all types of different buckets of work and also non-work and like intersections of identity and questions. Um, but I would love to hear maybe in a few words kind of how you're how you're seeing yourself these days, you know, how you want to present yourself to the world. Wow, that was very tender already. Um, <laughs> my name is Mimi Zhu. I am a writer and I'm a Gemini as well, and a lover and a survivor. Um, and my pronouns are they, them, and I am just grateful. I'm really, really grateful to be here right now and for you to acknowledge and see my multi-dimensions that change every single day, you know, so. Absolutely, baby, that's what we do. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm also in, in like just simmering in deep, deep gratitude. Um, and I'm also, I feel like it's so special to have you here because when I was thinking of how to sort of like commemorate and celebrate and embody joy of like doing this project for two years, especially kind of half of it being through just ongoing crisis, I really, you know, you were really one of the first people that came to mind and I think it's, you know, the fact that Eclipse is in Gemini today. I want to read what Chani said for us today. 
Her reading says that there's no way to change my narrative if I don't choose my words carefully. With this eclipse, I pay special attention to the stories that I tell about myself, my life, and my worthiness. And that quote also reminds me so much of our conversations. You know, when I think of our conversations, not not just this one, but really all the conversations we've had, I really sort of place them as like these like illuminating mirrors, right? Like we're reflecting so much from each other and then also offering new clarity and light and vision. Um, But so much of our conversations have also been about sort of like thinking about how reverberating the impact is of the stories that we grow up with, the stories we tell tell us, like tell each other and tell ourselves, like how impactful that is into our psyche and in our bodies. And I would just love to kick us off, you know, especially as writers, like what, what are the sort of stories that you're choosing to inform your sense of self and purpose these days, you know, like which are you accepting and embracing and which are you rejecting? Mm. I think lately I have been thinking about stories a lot because as of the last year, I've been encouraged to tell more of my story, right? And in writing the book that I am currently writing, I've had to kind of really be soft with myself as I tell my story. And a lot of the time in to be grounded in that process to listen. And I think reading is a very pivotal action in listening because it also feels like a meditation. It feels like a chance where I can slow my breathing a little bit and just be completely captivated by somebody else's dimensionality that parallels with my own mirror, right? And I feel like I always think this, and you already said it, which is very divine. We all these like mirrors that are like paralleling each other, but I do believe we're in like perpetual dance. So I've been reading a lot of stories and just really like sitting with them. And I especially am reading stories that are uplifting untold histories, um, especially by voices that have conventionally been silenced and marginalized. So I'm reading many many stories actually by survivors. um, And that's creating a relationship with the stories that I'm telling myself too. And I'm very humbled to be able to listen Um, And this Gemini season, eclipse season, all of these different solar dances that are happening in the sky, it's been very difficult for me to like focus, right? And to even focus on myself or to think of the worthiness of my own story and my experiences. Like the amount of times that I honestly have gaslit myself in the last few weeks in telling myself that my storytelling is inadequate is a direct reflection of the generations where we have been told that our storytelling is inadequate right so listening and reading the stories of people especially queer and trans non-binary people is extremely grounding and humbling for me Um, and it's really one of the only ways that i've been able to stay focused and stay grounded in my own process too and i just really also appreciate these stories because they actually actively celebrate and illuminate how complicated we are right and how multi-dimensional we are and because of that it makes me feel less inclined to flatten myself i think the best stories are the ones that really create these textures and these layers um, because it's real life and I'm like my real life is just as worthy and just as complicated and just as nuanced and I deserve to tell it too so 
yeah, I've been listening a lot lately. That's been very important for me. Mm, I love that. That's a practice that all of us need to deepen urgently. <laughs> I'm I'm really sitting with what you said about flattening of self and like flattening of our stories and and everything right that comes with that the flattening of imagination the flattening of truth and you know it, it makes me think of something that we've talked about um which I know Jenny O'Dell talks about in her book how to do nothing right about how sort of the platforms that people like you and I are sort of like becoming increasingly more visible on and sort of sharing our work from are actually platforms that thrive off the idea of context collapse, right? Like flatten it, make it shareable and make it for quote unquote the masses, right? And I don't use the masses in like it's typical sort of radical form, like the people just like, just make it sort of marketable in a way. Um, and I know so much of your work is also on social media, but I'm also so excited that right now you are birthing a book and I would love to hear, I mean, there's like so much to say there, right? Like, I really think this book is going to offer folks that follow you and like resonate with your offerings so much more, like so many more questions and so many more curiosities than the post can do right now. Um, and I think that's so exciting, not just for you, but for everyone that benefits so much from your work. But I'm, I'm also curious, like, you know, we're like hella young and, and this seems like a pretty scary process, you know, to be sort of birthing a book in the, you know, in the bits of a pandemic still while we're coming out of like, you know, a year and some of isolation in many ways. And also because of the of the content that you're that you're sharing in the book. So, yeah, talk to me a little bit about how the process is unfolding and unraveling for you. Ooh, yeah. I mean, thank you for seeing me. I mean, the times that we've been able to see each other in real, in real life too, you know that I was in the midst of that process. And being able to actually talk to you right now and then has also informed my writing process because I think what it is is that work or the idea of work wants to make us just stop in our tracks, right? It wants to make us pause our relationships, like pause our fun, pause our joy and allocate all of our focus to this like compartmentalized activity of like mm -hmm. making money. And now that these things for me, for the first time in my life, which I never thought possible, is making my survival and doing what I love is conjoined. I've also had to examine the people and the corporations that are involved in that process, right? And to see whether I feel safe in that, how I feel safe in that process. And truth be told, I've encountered so much imposter syndrome because a lot of it originates from not having ever had institutional support before this moment, right? Like I didn't really go to any like elite Ivy university. I went to school in Australia. Like I've had a very... DIY approach to my writing where I've just posted things online because it was free and because I had a photo editing app and I just wanted to make it look good, I guess. Um, and so doing it in a very DIY way and reaching people in a way that I hoped felt intimate, felt very natural to me, right? But also always in my head being like, I'm just doing this for me 
and my friends and whoever resonates with this and whoever connects with it in a way without thinking that that could extend to corporations and that could extend to institutions as well. And then having to reorient that when these institutions come knocking at my door and start approaching me, but then always like having this thought that like, oh, but now I have to alter myself, right? Now I have to like shape shift to align with that. Now I have to make my work more literary or less meme and more like published author, which is very much telling of the ways that these systems try to shape our work, manipulate our work, and actively silence us, right? Even when they are presenting these opportunities to us, they're like, oh, do this on our terms, right? Yeah. Or at least that's just like the voice in my head. So in this writing process, I've had to excavate so much personal stuff. And while I excavate my personal traumas and relationships, I'm also actively unlearning and approaching or reapproaching my relationship with these institutions, right? And having to really take a hard look at them while vowing and committing to be as honest with myself and to remember that the people that I want to connect with are the same people that I've always been in connection with, right? Or the same people who have seen me from the jump and like see me just like, and still see me just writing my stuff on like gradient backgrounds i'm not a graphic designer you know and like we love it <laughs> thank you and affirming me you know and mm-hmm. don't get me wrong i'm extremely grateful to be able to have a book that you can hold and i want everyone i know if they want to to also be able to have these books where they're not policing themselves constantly in the writing process in the ways that i've had to unpack which is actually also still giving me this like energy right i'm like okay so i'm writing this and i'm finding it difficult to write about this why am i finding it difficult to write about this oh these exact systems that make me feel weird about writing about this also are the same systems that make me feel weird about surviving and make it difficult for me to heal as a survivor right Mm -hmm. so it's really all interconnected so really if i could summarize my process of birthing this book it's really about all the interconnections in my life coming together. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> oh my God. There's so much there, babe. I mean, I think a few things that stands out for me is like this idea of shape shifting. And I feel like, I mean, trauma, particularly, I think makes us particularly skilled at being able to shape shift, right? And like respond, like have these defense mechanisms that are so embodied. Um, and it's in many ways almost like subconscious, right? Like they're just, they're happening by default um, as we seek safety. And then I also think obviously like, you know, this episode is giving all the Gemini energy and that's like one of our amazing traits. And also one of the things that it really is like this double-edged sword. I constantly find myself like trying to resist. I mean, there's like this adaptability that feels really powerful and has sort of gotten me to the place that I have and keeps me rooted in center. But then there's like this constant fight of like, I need to shrink myself. And, you know, if I do this or if I'm too loud or if I come off too fun or sexy or this, it's going to diminish how serious people think my political analysis are or how committed I may be to movement work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, I really, really feel that in my heart. 
And then there's this other piece of like corporation co-option, right? That we can we can have a whole separate conversation on that, right? Like mm-hmm. thinking of us just like having dumplings and like the cloudy ass <laughs> afternoon in LA and like just processing all of this and the ways in which it's not just like a another phenomenon and like you know capitalism. It is that, but it has such real effects in the ways in which we see the trajectory of our work the way in which we sort of um, discern like what is worth it, right? Like what, you know, which check is worth it and what is not. And it's also really questioning like our values around, yeah, like, you know, what do we really ride for? And and how does that translate into any association with corporations or institutions and systems? And I think for someone like you specifically, because we're coming out of this you know, this wave of stop Asian hate, which is absolutely so important. But to be clear, corporations don't care about solidarity towards Asian American communities or Asian communities around the world. We're very clear on that. So you're, you know, we're coming out of this wave of like, just being inundated with stop Asian hate and whatever the mainstream and the elite and corporations have decided are the acceptable narratives within that. And then also, of course, we're in the middle of Pride Month. <laughs> and it's, you know, I I really want to look to you and sort of like have a moment to process like in our bodies. It's like, ooh, like I'm sure that these people are blowing your shit up and really are trying to like get a piece of you and like, co- you know, have you co-sign them, whatever it is, like a product, a brand or whatever it might be. And I'm just you know, how are you sort of a staying centered in like principle and value and even just the process of having to deal with like the inundation of corporate um, attention? Like, how has that been for you? Yeah. Um, woo. <laughs> <laughs> what a question, right? And mm-hmm. I woke up thinking about it this morning because it's been really weighing quite heavily on my mind. Um, I think there are some really important questions to ask, right, within these like months of celebration, where don't get me wrong, I think celebration and joy is always so important, especially if I'm able to see my queer friends of color be able to be joyful and be able to pay their rents with comfort this month or and every other month, you know. But I think that's the problem, right, is that it's allocated a month. Mm-hmm. And in this month and in the month before as well, all of these corporations are coming out of the woodworks, right, and saying, we care for you, we care for you, but we need you to offer us a service for us to be able to give you a little piece of like our gratitude, right? And I think that's really dangerous because a lot of the time these people are offering, all these corporations are offering very, very little in order for us to enhance their image, right? In order for us to enhance their allyship or whatever they wanna call it, while they do nothing in regards to how their corporations actively harm queer and trans people of color, right? And what it is, it's just slapping a rainbow sticker on a wound instead of the deep healing and listening that needs to happen. 
And unfortunately, in a lot of these campaigns, I never feel listened to, right? I've had experiences before, at least in the last few years of my life, living in New York City, where I've been approached by so many huge corporations who offer me little to nothing, little to nothing to do a whole bunch of labor for them. And the worst part is that I would always agree because I couldn't make rent and they knew that, right? Mm -hmm. And specifically prey on people that they know have a very difficult time making money, especially during this pandemic, because we just kind of, things are kind of opening back up now, right? And these corporations know that so many people struggled within like their working lives and their careers in the past year and like hey let's offer you like the bare minimum right Mm -hmm. you're welcome and i think that's like super problematic because it does nothing right in terms of like long-term institutional change it slaps a rainbow sticker and it also doesn't like provide any safety or security healthcare, mental health care. And, you know, I think one of the major things that I'm asked to do is like to tell my story and to talk about my experiences with being a queer, non-binary Asian person or whatever. And I'm just like, what do you want me to extract out of me, right? What Mm -hmm. answer will get you satisfied and get you the best image that you're looking for of yourself? So it's always very very suspicious to me uh while at the same time while i say all of this critique and i think it's important to be critical at the same time i highly encourage all of my queer trans people of color friends acquaintances everyone like if you need to do what you have to do to pay the bills you do what makes you feel safe right just make sure that you're not exploited, right? You're not being exploited. You're not being taken advantage of. They're not being coercive with what they want you to share about your experiences, especially surrounding trauma, that they're paying you well, like not just fairly, but well, like really well, right? And I think we can do that by talking to each other and by, you know, like sharing our experiences because seriously like when i talk to people who i truly admire right and i'm just like oh you know like you're doing your thing and i see you they'll tell me these like horrific experiences they've been through and i'll be like wow like so we're all being played you know absolutely right and so i highly encourage all of us to engage in these conversations where we get to decide what is acceptable and what is not and also have creative input in these campaigns right instead of being slapped a hashtag on our bodies that we didn't approve of in the first place so yeah i think it's very interesting that a lot of disposability stuff comes up during these times where they allocate a month to declare us worthy and brilliant and then that's taken away and we're all just like exhausted and drained and can only pay rent for the month of june you know so it's just like a lot to consider and also to think about who is also actively being excluded from these conversations who is not being costed and who is not yet like being approached to even like invited to tell their stories in the first place right and who is on the mood boards interchangeably every year, mm-hmm. going trendy, right? It's like, 
when we really think about it, that's not humans in relationships to humans, right? That's honestly, it feels like our bodies being used as chess pieces. That's really what it feels like. So (laughs) I, I have been thinking a lot about this and I wrote about it this morning and wanted to post it, but actually felt hesitant to do so. And that's Mm. when I realized that a lot of the times the social media platform that I do have really doesn't feel like mine anymore because of the hold that a lot of these corporations have had on all of us in surveilling us, in determining us, in the censorship that we are dealt with every day. Like it's really a lot. And I just want to invite more thoughtfulness into our conversations, into our daily lives, because social media really is a part of actively flattening that thoughtfulness because it's hand in hand with capitalism right now. So hands in hand. Oh my God. Oh, so much, so much as always, like there's so much to tease out. Oh yeah. I mean, I think the only thing I would add and just like want to like uplift and everything that you offered is like, I think what I worry about constantly is like when we have these celebratory months where so many of our friends deservingly so are, are being sort of celebrated on massive platforms. I mean, this should be happening all the time because it's like, you know, we're iconic and we're doing the work and we're brilliant and we haven't had access to this in the past. But I think what I worry about and what I feel really committed to in like my sort of arena is like, even if if, if our folks make the decision, because I think it's like there is a decision to be made around like, yeah, I do need this money, right? Like, you know, if a corporation's offering you, I don't know, $5,000 check, which is actually like not a lot for these corporations, but let's just throw a number. It's like, oh, that's actually rent for like maybe two months in New York. (laughs) Um, But, you know, like people are making the decisions they need to sort of like uphold their material needs. And I think I'm more worried about like the sort of rhetoric that happens where corporations have gotten really strategic at sort of... um, placing these as like liberatory moments and even that's different right like celebratory like celebration and liberation do have connections right they are intertwined but this is not this is not the pure celebration that happens when we're dancing and feel safe and like are wearing like an iconic look or having these like healing conversations about grief in our families and sort of like all of the generational trauma and like the ancestral healing that we're up to. That's one form of celebration that is very real. But, you know, this corporate sort of backed um, situation is different. And I think I want us to get a little sharper or more critical around like there is a textural difference, right? Like there is some sort of exchange and extraction that is always going to happen when we align ourselves with them. And And I especially worry because I I think what I've noticed throughout the years, you know, observing the same pattern that's only grown, right, is they're preying more and more on young people, right? Like really young um, folks, right? Like I almost joke that I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm like reaching, you know, I've gotten hit up for like all types of dumb shit. But, you know, a lot of these corporations in the deck, they'll be like, you know, 18 to 25. I'm like, well, I'm over 25. So mm-hmm. it it's, reminds me. And as a, you know, I organize alongside young people and, I, and I'm like actively interrogating how all of this is impacting them and seeing how these brands are really preying on like the youth right now. Right. Like there's mm-hmm. like, of course, uh, arts here, but then there's like really youngins, you know, 
And that's those are the things I really worry about. Of like, what happens if we're not able to tell the true history, right, of Pride Month, right? If like this is not, if this month is not sparking like global solidarity with our queer folks and siblings, like literally all over the globe resisting oppressive fascist right-wing governments and abolitionist frameworks, which is saying like, fuck the pigs, you know, that's how pride started in this country. If we're not like thinking about a true revolutionary politic that rejects capitalism and white supremacy and all these things, then I'm just worried about what happens to our collective not just imagination, but even our collective commitments, right? Like it seems like our commitments can very easily every year sort of water down a little bit. Um, so yeah, those are some of the, yeah, those are like some of the, the critiques slash like concerns that come to mind for me. Um, but I want to I want to pivot a little bit on on this tip. Like, you know, you're reflecting on how these corporations they love exploiting a good story, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And whatever they deem is a good story, um, they won't provide you with like long-term resources for healing, any restorative justice, therapy, counseling, you know, somatic work, any any of that, right? But they will want you to sort of, to your point, excavate these really traumatic, it's like trauma porn, right? But they've gotten really good at it that doesn't feel pornographic anymore. Um and I remember writing about this years ago when it, it felt like it was first like bubbling up where I'm like, wow, if I'm if I share some really personal, um, like traumatic story on a caption, it garners so much attention. Right. On one end, we know. Right. We know why. Right. Like we're deeply relational people. And to feel like we're not alone in the pains that we experience and the harms that we've experienced and endured is incredibly powerful and like is a form of affirming life. But then like it also becomes really good content and it becomes really, again, marketable. And we're in just like such a dystopic moment um, that I think I wonder for you, Mimi, like as you're writing a book that is asking you to dig and carve out things that I imagine are incredibly, incredibly difficult and painful um, and just full of grief to do so in probably a very short amount of time for a publishing house and then kind of like for the world to consume and, and make out of it what it will, you know, I I can imagine that's that's a lot that you're sort of like dealing with. Um, but how, how are you sort of like placing boundaries, even in the process? You know, we talked a little bit about the process earlier, but what are your boundaries looking like, right? Because it's mm-hmm. like the story is about being a survivor and all of the facets of that, which mm-hmm. for me just sounds so, so intimate and personal. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, thank you for your thoughtfulness. Like, I really love that question because I think the question of boundaries is directly related to the work ethic that so many of us have been adapted, which is birthed from scarcity mindsets that we've had since like childhood. And I think for me, because I have held that for a very long time and I have parents who, you know, would really struggle to make it and would buy 
so many groceries to sustain us for a little while and you know like all of these like practices of survival that i adapted from my parents and then in this realm of writing this book i'm still using because at times when i write this book i do feel like super triggered right or i do feel like i'm like on the edge of like losing something within myself or because my grief is so at the surface i'm like what do i do with this loss right now right without feeling like i'm gonna lose everything and i think my boundaries and i think boundaries is any of the kind of creative projects that we do anything that we love to do honestly even if it's things that bring us immense joy i think it does require some form of boundaries um, that i've learned so much about in the last year and so as i write this book and i'm grateful and loving and learning so much about myself i'm also just like what good is this gonna do me and the book if i just sit in my sorrow and my triggered state for like hours and hours every single day right and i realized that writing this book in writing this book i'm also committed to like living right i think if anything my book is literally titled be not afraid of love and how can i not be afraid of love if i'm afraid of taking some time away from like loving myself right or if i can take some time away from being like really really deeply involved in a process that is really difficult like how can i actively invite love into my life and unlearn my fear of love if i can't at the same time allow myself love in walking outside for a little bit right or reading something that's not like super heavy all the time because my reading is not always light i'll say that but reading something that actively just like makes me laugh or just fills me with like a deep sense of gratitude and listening and the deep like boundaries that i need to do is i deserve to like continue living right it's like like working is not supposed to be this like rapture like it's not supposed to be like this like wall that's like built up during your life it's not supposed to be this period of time where we're so like stagnant and incapable of like experiencing joy right and i even think about the word like taking a break like taking a break is like breaking from the day of work right it's like breaking the day of that of like the hours that have been allocated to us to like provide and to like create these products but i don't feel like it's a break like i don't when i take my breaks i'm not like it doesn't feel like i'm like fragmenting my day you know and it shouldn't feel like i'm fragmenting my day it feels like i'm being rejuvenated right and i'm just like recharging and i think even that language in taking a break is very telling of the ways that work has like overtaken our lives how capitalism mm -hmm. has overtaken our lives and so being aware of that i'm just like how can i be committed to rest at the same time? How can I be committed to regenerating and rejuvenating my energy so I can write from a place, even when I am triggered, of just flowing love, right? Mm -hmm. I cannot write a book about love without actively being in love with myself and being in love with what I write. So 
Yeah, I, I think it's been like really challenging also because I've never written a body of work so big and so serious to me yeah. before. Like I'm deeply committed to this book and I really, really hope that people do connect with it. Um, and I do want it to be an offering. And I do think offerings come from places of abundance. So in nourishing and cultivating my abundance that is inherently connected to everyone else's abundance, I've been able to write this book. So, yeah. <laughs> easy, I'll say that. But at the same time, I do care deeply for the book. Therefore, I care deeply for myself. And therefore, I care deeply for the people that I love. And understanding and remembering that all of those things are connected allows me to take care of all of those things at the same time. Yes, 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 yes. I mean, it's also our season. So this idea of choosing to live because it quite in so many ways is a choice, right? Like, mm. especially with an awareness of the sort of society that we live under and our political economy, there's in so many ways in which we can just sort of shrink ourselves and just be an autopilot mm. until we fully collapse. So I think choosing, yeah, I, I feel the same. And I just really want to affirm everything you said. Something that comes to mind is, you know, this, I like our families. <laughs> I'm like, ooh, where do we even go here? Our mm -hmm. families and the sort of, there's like the ancestral work, but then there's like really the close, like familial trauma, right? Like the very immediate, like what we grew up under. And, you know, I don't want to speak for you, but I know for me, it feels like, Oof, there's so much that we're rejecting from, from our families who are dear people that we absolutely love and care for and want to build a new world for as well. But there's also such a disconnect and there's such a, you know, in their own defense mechanisms of being immigrants, of being working class people of color, of, you know, all of the patriarchal trauma, all of the things also the way that they show up is is very particular right and it sort of clashes with us and our dreams and our sort of actions and our lifestyle in so many ways like you know i think of ocean vong's um he has this quote um where he's talking about how in some ways um children of immigrants have to sort of betray their parents in order to actually fulfill the dreams that, that same, those same parents had for them, right? And it's a very specific paradox and contradiction that I don't think we get enough time to process, right? Because I think there's like the romanticized, you know, we've talked about a lot of the good things, right? Like having a platform and being able to create offerings and process and heal. And then I know for so many of us, then we go back home and it's walking into a different universe, right? Mm. Of yeah, it's just almost like an alternate universe. And and the reason why I'm bringing this up is just like, I think something that for me would have been so resourceful and, and powerful and transformative is if I would have had access to resources, like, for example, like your work when I was, you know, 10 years ago or maybe more, right? Um, but like the internet wasn't popping like that necessarily then. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, Tumblr definitely like probably saved my life, but it just felt like a very different moment then. Mm -hmm. And 
I'm curious and I'd love to hear sort of like, what are you telling your younger self these days, right? Not Mm -hmm. just in relationship to the book and the process and everything that's coming out there, but just like with all the reflections you have, you're just coming out of a birthday. Um, Yeah. What are you telling your younger self? Yeah. I mean, I feel like um, coming out of the birthday, you know, our Gemini season asses. <laughs> we, Period. <laughs> you know, we've talked about how it's a really emotional and sentimental time. And I think this year, turning 27, which feels like very young and also like grown and sexy at the same time, you know, mm-hmm. there, um, it was a really deep time to actually think about all the grief that I've experienced in the past year, because I do think that life and death are completely connected and, you know, they're of the same force really. Um, And so I was thinking a lot about death, honestly, um, the day before my birthday. And I was listening to this song, this like classical piece that I used to play on the piano. And I started crying, like I just burst into tears and I was, deeply emotional and my natural reaction and my natural survival mechanism apart from dissociating a lot of the time after my dissociation period was that I really wanted to be still with myself um and what really helps in that stillness is right is writing so I started to write and I wrote all about like the grief that I've experienced and how life and death are interconnected. And I started to think about how so much of my writing feels like I'm reparenting myself, right? Mm-hmm. Because in that moment when I was literally rocking back and forth, creating myself crying, I was like, this is me being a parent for myself right now, because this is what I would have loved in this moment as a child and as an adult, and that hasn't changed. Um, And kind of allowing myself that vulnerability really taught me how caring for myself has changed a lot and how I've had to unlearn what like self-care and self-love is marketed to us as as well. And when I think about my family, I get deeply emotional and sentimental and Ocean Vong really hits (laughs) with all of his quotes about his queerness and his mother and his relationship to his ancestors and the women in his family and his life. And it definitely like hits a nerve or like it really touches me because I think about my own very complicated relationships with my family, but also how as much as I'm reparenting myself, I also hope that whatever that reparenting is hitting for me is also healing wounds within them. And, you know, and I've seen them reluctantly (laughs) be quite (laughs) open to my, or more open to my writing career or my, the writing that I do share publicly. And at first they would be like, why are you sharing this? Like, do you really want to like expose yourself like this and after a while they were like wait you did that and i think i can verbalize some of the things that i've been through too so that's been like deeply deeply transformative in ways i didn't expect or even realize would happen you know Mm -hmm. but 
I know that my family adapted their survival skills. And it's funny because my whole book is about survival, but it's, it's about my specific survival. And it's also about all the survival that I've witnessed and adapted myself over the years. And my parents are completely embedded in that. And I've watched their survival really come from a place of wanting me to be safe, right? And then having to ask, like, what is sold to our parents as the guarantee of safety? And it's money, right? And it's capitalism. And it's like all of these things that they were taught to do that they didn't think my creative journey would allow either. So as intense as it was in the beginning, um, I really do think that just not even for me, right? It's really like being able to do what I do and to continue to write has allowed them to see that there is something really powerful in being able to do this together, right? And so that's been really healing. It's really been healing and a form of reparenting for myself and even for my parents, dare I say. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes. Thank you for sharing all of that. You know, yeah. thank you so much for, yeah, letting me in there for a bit because as just hearing you talk, like I, I literally felt like I was just hearing a story about kind of like the own relationship arc of like me and my parents, right? Um, it's so it's so particular. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I think so many of us are also in in a very similar position, right? Like it's so specific and it's also so so much of a narrative of immigrants, of working class, people of color, of just like cultural and generational gaps and trying to make sense of it all, right? Like being able to really clearly pinpoint the impacts of assimilation and sort of the dream of the American dream mm -hmm. <laughs> and like whatever that might be, which is for them, you know, in so many cases, it's like a life or death choice. Mm -hmm. And for us, how it's like, we'd want literally nothing to do with it in so many ways, right? Like we started this conversation talking about the way in which this quote unquote American dream and its tentacles is like quite literally just enwrapping us and like making, you know, just chopping us into pieces in so many ways, like spiritually. Um, so it's just like a very, it's such a strange contradiction to have to be in the midst of. And I think that's a dance in itself, right? It's like our parents going through the hardships and the life or death survival that they did have to go through that we had to witness as children showed mm -hmm. us like, this is what my parents have to go through for what? You know, right. like what are the gaps in the system? What is not working? And then us being vocal about what isn't working, what's never worked and what these harmful systems have been built on, which is violence and genocide. I think, and I hope that our parents are also listening and being like, you're right, like this never really worked in the first place. So I really do want to think that it's like a feeding relationship, but in intergenerational relationships, we all have to be open. And I think it's really about an opening and about spaciousness. Um, I used to have so much resistance with my family and just be like, well, you're wrong. Like mm -hmm. you're traditional and stuck in your ways. And I think lately, as I've also you know, grown older and I'm at the age when my parents had me as a as a an infant, like I'm just like really opening up to 
the spaciousness that we can all live within, right? And I learned a lot about that in like somatic healing um, because I finished The Politics of Trauma, which is like such an amazing book and such an incredible offering of intergenerational trauma and also feeling what it feels like in our somas, our bodies, our minds, our spirits, everything. So also connecting our somas to each other and our parents and our friends, you and I right now, like it's all this like interconnected dance for sure. Yes. One of the really powerful things you just said, I mean, so many, but is this idea that, um, or rather, I feel like your life begins to transform once you're able to see the humanity of your parents and your family, right? Despite all of the, whew, all of the things that that may entail. And I think that's something that I, I really give full gratitude to sort of like all of the abolitionist teachings and work that has been poured into me and offered my way because I think I was, that was one of the first huge, huge, huge pivots in my own life where I was able to be like, like actually ask myself the questions, like if I'm willing to see the humanity of strangers, like what is the work going to look like for me to see the humanity of the people that raised me, Mm. even with all their complexities and like all their harmful ways of being. And, you know, I'm not saying that folks need to be in relationships with folks that harm them. But I think for me, it's sort of expanded the lens of, you know, mm-hmm. just making sense of who they are and why they've done the things that they have and why they show up the way that they do. And, yeah, I mean, it completely I felt like I've just like had received a new pair of glasses. Right. Like is the only way I can describe it. And it's not perfect and it's not easy, but I think. I'm able to like establish boundaries in a in a much more intentional way and also like offer them more vulnerable pieces of myself to like bring them into what are the things I care about what are my beliefs and why and try to connect those to them you know like sometimes they're like you're just so radical and you know I just like I'm like well let's just have conversations and like let's figure it out together and I think that process is really moving especially as we get older to your point because then they're also getting older (laughs) so you know I think thinking of the possibility of loss and grief is also for me placing a lot of urgency around repairing Mm -hmm. and reconciliation of relationships with certain people absolutely I mean that's really that shows just like the interconnectedness of like all of these like constellations that we're all constantly in and how these constellations are very complicated and nuanced and absolutely abolitionist framework is deeply embedded in that too because I actually was reading We Do This Till We Free Us today by Mariam Kaba and I was just so blown away by like the openness and the spaciousness that reading it was allowing in me and how something that really stood out to me was how Mariam like always talks about how hope is not just like something that we strive for but it's a verb like it's an action right and hope is like the allowing of humanity and the allowing of the complexities and the nuances and not just being like this is the harm that was done but also why is the harm being done and what needs to change right I think that's like the biggest part of abolition and how I think she also said in the book that abolition is creation and I thought that was the most beautiful phrase ever and it filled me with the sense of hope right it filled me with the sensation of like 
what do we rebuild from what we can acknowledge is destructive. Um, Even within our families, even within these corporations, all of it, like what can we create, you know? Yes. Oof, that book is so, it's just so illuminating and Mm -hmm. so, so instructive. Um, I'm so grateful for Mariam Kaba and like just the spaces we've shared. But yeah, and I, I think even for me, it's like, it also makes me think of the value of like community organizing and doing political work, right? Because it's like, to Mariam Kappa's point, like hope is a discipline and you will be challenged around your discipline of hope or lack of very easily once you start trying to do this work. You know, it's like the odds are stacked against us. That is not, you know, that's not a hot take. And it's essentially requiring like our spirit, our souls, our somas, and like all of our ancestors' guidance to be aligned, to believe that despite the odds, we actually could build a new and mm-hmm. and choosing that process every single day. It's not like you do that once and you're like, okay, I'm good for the year, right? Because we're reminded of the atrociousness of this system every single day, every hour on our feeds, in conversations, when you're walking um, down the street, in our own experiences, like it's constant. And I I always think of the her quote of hope is a discipline. And I always, I'm like, I must be disciplined about it, like choose it and have consent around, around it. Um, but yeah, whew, so much there, you know, so it's, uh, it's the eclipse in Gemini for us. I mean, well, for everybody, but I think it's particularly powerful for Gemini's right now. You know, you came out of your 27th birthday. I'm a week out for my 27th birthday. We out here. <laughs> already know. And again, like all the feels are here, right? But I also feel like there's like a deep sense of affirmation headed our way, right? Like I feel more confident today when I woke up and more capable than I had these past couple of weeks. So I'd love to hear what are the sort of affirmations you want to name to the universe today for yourself, for those that you love and care for? Ooh, okay, so I think the greatest affirmation for me truly is seeing a butterfly fly past me today. She was a really big yellow butterfly and she was just like outstretching her wings and um, fluttering by the orange tree. And that felt like a very, very deep affirmation for me because it mm. showed me that I'm not alone. Honestly, I think gemini season and birthday seasons eclipse season oh honestly every day can feel quite lonely you know especially if you are in this pandemic right if you are being introspective if you have like i don't know tendencies to feel imposter syndrome all of these different things right we tend to self-isolate sometimes or at least i tend to self-isolate a lot and i think i've been feeling this like loneliness every now and then. Um, But even what you said before about how community does this together, right? Whether it's organizing, loving, caring, learning, all of these different actions and disciplines. um, I've also realized that we are also connected with our non-human kin as well and that they always guide us and teach us so many lessons. And I truly feel so grateful for the lessons that I learn from 
butterflies in which like they are spirits who are present, you know, they're present and they're wondrous and they're curious. And I really want to carry that with me every day while I write my book. Like I want to be curious while I write my book. I want to be curious about all the humanity that I can uncover and also the connections that I can uncover and also not only uncover the love that I have for myself that may have been buried, you know, since learning through harmful systems in schools, but also uncover how that love does not exist on its own. And it's connected to you, it's connected to the butterfly, and it's connected to everybody. Yes. All the interconnection, I want it. <laughs> I need it. It's just, it's truly what makes this life worth living, you know, mm -hmm. to not be alone and to know that there's a vast network of life every day, um, despite all the ruin that we're sort of walking through. Mimi, I want to thank you so, so much for spending the evening with me. Well, it's evening here. And, you know, for being you, every single conversation we have for me brings me, it feels like a blanket of softness and tenderness and, you know, sort of like it will be okay type of thing. And for that, I'm deeply grateful. And I love you so much. And I'm very, very happy that you... Um, accepted to do this little two-year anniversary kiki with me here and getting into it. Um, I'm so excited for the year you're going to continue to have. I don't want to pressure you anything around this book because I'm sure you already got the things. <laughs> but I'm also so excited for the book and, and what it's going to offer so many of us. Um, nothing but love and gratitude and warm, warm, warm hugs um, for you. Thank you. I love you, Nikki, and I am just grateful for you. You are like a, every time I'm around you, you are truly just like the warm angel. And you just like, you're also like a big brain baddie, you know, you just <laughs> multi-dimensionality. And you also have this real gift of listening and hearing and seeing everybody else's multi-dimensionality and like, this work that you do is seen and cherished by so many of us. So I'm so grateful for you. Thank you, honey. I love you. Love you. Happy Gemini season. Happy Gemini season.